There are a number of must-sees if you're in New York City during the holiday season. That could include viewing the holiday window display at some of Manhattan's best department stores or ice skating at Rockefeller Center. Then there's St. Patrick's Cathedral, the prominent cultural attraction, which is known for its grand architecture, also has a prominent musical history. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. A while back, I had the opportunity to talk with Salvador Basil about his book, Fifth Avenue Famous, The Extraordinary Story of Music at St. Patrick's Cathedral. We'll hear part of that interview. Then we hear from WFUV's Casey Candela. She recently did an interview about Archbishop John Hughes, a 19th century Catholic who laid the cornerstone of St. Patrick's Cathedral, founded Fordham University, and earned the nickname Dagger John. But first, my interview with cathedral historian Salvador Basil. Now, the St. Patrick's Cathedral that we know of today, the one that takes up that whole block, um, uh, the whole New York City block, isn't really the original church, correct? Not at all. Not so at all. what happened to the original building, and why did the church have to move to Fifth Avenue? At the time, the early, mid-19th century, St. Patrick's Cathedral was down on Mott Street, uh, Mott and Spring and Mulberry. It took up that entire block, but then again, downtown, that's a much smaller block. That was, in its day, a very impressive structure. It had been uh, dedicated around 1815 and then enlarged in the 1830s, and it had received its final form by the mid-19th century. But Bishop John Hughes, at the time, wanted something uh, more prominent. Mm -hmm. Uh, Catholicism in the city was not a very popular thing. There was a lot of backlash against it. And he was famed for being quite a feisty fellow. Mm -hmm. And he had also purchased a block of land on Upper Fifth Avenue. At that time, that was way out of town. No one, uh, no one, no one bothered to go there, really. This was at 50th Street and Fifth Avenue. Well, they were originally intending that it would be a graveyard, but it turned out that there was so little topsoil and so much bedrock that it was impossible to dig graves. So they thought, we need another uh, use for this block. And the bishop. The the bish- yes. And so, yeah, let, let's build a cathedral. And they did. As it happened, by the time that it was ready to be dedicated, the city had moved up to meet it. And many of the Protestant churches in town. Now, I can't absolutely swear this, but right. suddenly many of the Protestant churches in town had built their own churches ah, right on that same area. A little competition. Yeah, just a bit. Mm-hmm. So that uh, the old cathedral is still there. It is St. Patrick's Old Cathedral. It, it is now a parish church rather than a cathedral. But uh, it's a, still a very lively parish. It has a beautiful organ that was installed in 1869, and you can still be... <coughs> operated by cranking the bellows. Oh, wow. yeah. <laughs> now, Salvatore, uh, what drew you to write Fifth Avenue Famous, and how did you decide to focus on the musical history of St. Patrick's Cathedral? Well, uh, I'm a musician by trade. I've worked at St. Patrick's for the last 12 years as a cantor and in the choir. Mm-hmm. What had happened at the 2004 125th anniversary, the music department decided to have an anniversary concert. And our director of music, uh, Dr. Jennifer Pasquale, had done some research on her own. I think this was digging in old cabinets and found music that had been composed by previous choir directors. 
Well, one of the pieces, I talk about this in the book, mm -hmm. one of the pieces was a piece written in 1899 oh. by J.C. Ungerer. This, the originals were literally crumbling in your hands. We had to work from Xeroxes. And this was handwritten music. Well, if you play with music nowadays, you know, everything is computer generated. And this was like a door into another time. Yeah. And I thought, this is fascinating. Well, I wound up writing some of the program notes for that concert. And it was so interesting. And there seemed to be so much more history just lurking beneath the surface that I thought this is something that should be explored and no one knew about it. And so you started on this this journey yes. to uh, dig up all this history. Yes. Uh, over oh, two and a half, three years, I was able to compile things. I was lucky enough to meet some descendants of some of the choir directors. Who'd you meet? I met the grandchildren of Pietro Jan, who was the choir director from the late 1920s until 1943. And he was one um, that I read in the book who had a bit of a sense of humor. Oh, yes. He had a sense, <laughs> yes, he had a sense of humor. You yes. want to explain uh, one of the little tidbits from your book? That okay. That uh, well, one, one of the best uh, family stories that I heard was when his son had met the girl, mm. who was an old family friend, but they had clicked and decided that they he really wanted to get serious about her, Jan said, by all means, bring her to dinner. And he put a whoopee cushion on her <laughs> dining room chair. So you're meeting the parents, <laughs> yeah. probably maybe a little nervous. You and know? Uh, well, it turned out she was as good of a player as he was. And it turned out she knew how to not ac activate a whoopee cushion. So, ah. <laughs> yes. so they, they knew they were going to get along instantly. Uh -huh. <laughs> but yeah, he was he was a fun guy. Uh, he also had a dinner party when, with which he had invited some clergy and had dribble spoons for the soup course. Oh. <laughs> so he had his moments. Yeah, they were characters. Yeah, but he was uh, an intense musician in the true Italian fashion, mm -hmm. and it turned out that one of his best friends was Toscanini, of course. Mm -hmm. So he was plugged into the entire New York music scene and used it and brought its richness into the cathedral. And that was a time when many churches, Catholic churches, were not that exciting musically. Mm -hmm. But I recall there was one fellow who I think the, the comment that he had made after a visit to the cathedral in those days was, I hope heaven is as good as this. Oh. So now there's over a century of information, uh, which, like I said, I, I imagine was not very easy to find. So what would you say was the most surprising thing that you discovered um, about uh, St. Patrick Cathedral's musical history? I think the most surprising thing in contrast to the current day is that 100 years ago, 125 years ago, sacred music was a big thing. It was considered part of everyone's regular weekly entertainment allotment. Right. And to that extent, there were ticket scalpers when the cathedral was first dedicated, oh. advertising in the papers that they had seats. Mm -hmm. Like they do for, you know, rock concerts yes. now. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. It was the singers themselves were called stars. They had their pictures in the paper. The choir masters were heroes. The choirs were considered uh, very important. It was almost a Broadway kind of fame. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating that it worked in that way because nowadays 
you can be a member of a church choir, you can be a soloist in a church choir, and nobody knows this. Right. Uh, but in those days, this was sort of, that is Marie-Louise Clary. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I think what got me when I was reading your book, Fifth Avenue Famous, was you really set the stage, I believe, when you discussed how live music was it. There weren't CDs. Nope. There weren't records. The spiritual side of it was great, but there was also that entertainment value that you were talking about in your book. And people were, I'm not going to say shameless about it, but they were completely open about it, that they loved listening to live music because they didn't get that anywhere else. Mm -hmm. They got that in concert halls or they got that at church or in synagogues. What do you think changed over the years? Was it the attitude of the people or the change in the music? All of the above, perhaps. Mm -hmm. I think that when recorded music, radio, and television came onto the scene, it was less important for people I'm I'm putting religious ideas aside here for okay. a second. The, if you wanted to go and hear music, you the person who in 1900 would be searching out a great church choir might just have a recording to play. Mm-hmm. Or there would be more choral societies to listen to. There were a lot of choral societies back in the olden days, but many of them were not very good at all, so people stayed away to some extent. Mm-hmm. So there was that and the fact that with broadcast music free, with recorded music cheap, plentiful, and good to listen to, I think that uh, the necessity for live music coming out of a choir loft was less the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, I mean, this has spilled into many churches nowadays, which some, which some of them use canned music as accompaniments, pre-recorded things. Right. Uh, I'm told about... For the entertainment value. For the entertainment value. And there are hymnals which operate on screens as if they're karaoke. Mm-hmm. So I've never seen one, but I've heard about this, and I didn't believe it. I thought people were joking with me. But <laughs> turns out that's the case. Yeah. There was a challenge at one point between the entertainment value of the music in the uh, early beginnings of St. Patrick's Cathedral and the more spiritual aspect. Oh, absolutely. You want to talk about that? Absolutely. Uh, this was sort of the big bang uh, in, in Catholic music. This happened at the end of 1903. The Pope Pius X, who had been installed that year, had had a problem with the entertainment value of, of Catholic music being too entertaining. Mm-hmm. And, in, and indeed, in Italy, there were many choirs that would just slap operatic numbers into the into the loft without even changing the words and they'd say great this church it's music it's pretty well some of it was correct and some of it is not since opera is not church right there's a spiritual component there, that's lacking yes mm-hmm. yes uh there was one point where the the pope mentioned at one mass hearing a duet from an opera but in the opera it takes place between two druid priestesses mm-hmm. So I think he had a problem with that. What was the opera? Norma. Mm-hmm. So uh, he, when he was settled, uh, wrote uh, what is called a motu proprio, which is a papal document that is uh, his own choice. And this was stating that from henceforth, Catholic music would have to be more suitable and to the Catholic service. And as far as he was concerned, because 
musicians were ministers, that meant that women could no longer take part in the music. Mm -hmm. So most of the year of 1904 was a hail of headlines. Uh, this is again. This is the 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 environment that was generated back then. That this could create headlines. There is a photo of the Easter parade, 1904. But if you look in the background, it was taken in front of St. Patrick's. You see crowds pressing in at the door because that day was a zoo in the cathedral. Because everyone was assuming this is the last time that you'll ever hear women at the cathedral in a major holiday. Mm -hmm. They were right. There were reporters sneaking up to the choir loft to see if women were crying. And they didn't see much of anything. Well, uh, it was just a crowd, mm -hmm. just a huge crowd. And the idea that there was this sort of huge attention, uh, it was an uncomfortable attention because a lot of musicians don't bargain for that. Mm -hmm. But it was, uh, it was a tough time because personally I can see where the Pope had a point. Right. But scripturally. Scripturally, mm -hmm. but then again, throwing out an entire gender. It changed the music. Oh, it changed it hugely. Uh, there are people who say that the music didn't really recover from that as far as the quality of the work that was done for about 10 to 20 years. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon speaking with author Salvatore Basil about his book, Fifth Avenue Famous, on the history of music at St. Patrick's Cathedral. Now, Salvatore, early in the church, there were the two big controversies uh, that took place. The first we dealt with about the removal of female singers, and the second was a problem with Gregorian chants. That is ongoing to this day. So to chant or not to chant, what was the controversy? Basically. A chant has existed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, right. yes. It has always been a very approved, very recommended form of music for a worship service. Initially, when the motu proprio came in, and in New York, that was, or at least at St. Patrick's, that was sort of late 1904, which is when the women disappeared, mm -hmm. and it was an entirely male ensemble. There were a few services that were almost nothing but chant. There were people at times who, who were recommending that nothing but chant should exist in a service. It's an interesting idea, but if you've ever attended what they call a Tridentine Mass, it's, it is a, a style unto itself, and it throws out a lot of music. It throws out Mozart and Haydn and many great compositions. And there was such a, such a thing at the time called a blacklist. And the idea that Mozart was on a blacklist is, it was it was a very severe measure. And this move towards Gregorian chants happened because, why? Because of the entertainment slash less, less than spiritual value of the music? Yes, they were mm -hmm. trying to make it something that was absolutely spiritual and not to be confused with entertainment value. Mm -hmm. That those were different items and don't get them confused. Salvatore Basil, in your book, Fifth Avenue Famous, you not only touch on the music of the church, you also have some pretty interesting historical tidbits. So tell me about the one boy soprano who, in your book, you said, quote, gave singing legend Bing Crosby a run for his money. Oh, yes. That was Arthur Jarrett, who later became Art Jarrett. Uh, now, who is he? If you have ever seen the movie Dancing Lady with Joan Crawford, okay. he, he is her vaudeville partner. Ah, okay. It's a very high voice. My dancing lady, there's nobody like you. 
you find such pleasure in doing what you do. How he could be competing with Bing Crosby is not my particular taste, but at at the time he was a radio superstar and uh, quite wealthy and quite successful and he had started as a boy soprano in the in the cathedral choir in the in the teens. And you also mentioned a choir boy who grew up to become the head of a crime ring? <laughs> yes, this was uh, this was a liability for Pietro Ian at the time he was conduct- Who was the choir master at the who time? Who was the choir master? Mm-hmm. He was conducting at St. Francis Xavier and one of his choir boys later uh, not too much later decided to form a ring that would use taxi cabs to uh, to get quickly to and from robberies. Oh, wow. And then on the witness stand, he tried to protest that he had started out as a good guy and pointed oh. out that he had been in the St. Francis Choir. <laughs> so you should let him off. Yes. <laughs> I don't think it worked. <laughs> now, Salvatore, is there an overall theme or message about um, music in Fifth Avenue Fame is your book? I didn't start trying to form a message because I really didn't know how the story was going to turn out. Mm -hmm. I didn't, or how it would, how it would end because it hasn't ended. Right. In fact, at the end of the book, I simply refer to the last chapter as epilogue, question mark, because there isn't an epilogue and it's impossible to say what will happen in an ongoing institution. Mm -hmm. I think if there is a message, it's that uh, everything changes and the only thing constant is, what is the the old (laughs) French phrase? You know, the only thing that is constant is change. It is astonishing because the same things that would happen nowadays happened in 1900 or in 1880 or in 1860. It's, it's uh, in a Examples? way, it's very, well, the idea of, actually, I'm going back to the old cathedral, one of the very first monster benefits ever held as a star-studded concert that would raise money for a worthy cause at old St. Patrick's Cathedral in 1826 was something called the Orphan's Benefit. This was to raise money for the orphan asylum and the very first Italian opera company had come to New York for a season and there was uh, the star soprano Maria Malibran who agreed to sing a benefit concert at the cathedral in order to raise money. Well this was an automatic draw At the time, however, the cathedral choir was made up of men who did not believe that they should be forced to do things like read music. Well, it turned out that what she had to sing was music that was beyond their scope, and they bowed out of the concert. And because they bowed out of the concert, they were not offered free tickets to the concert. Mm -hmm. And because they were not offered free tickets to the concert, the entire choir resigned as, as in a group. And this was a month of back and forth in the newspapers. I guess New York didn't have that much to talk about in those days. <laughs> but they came back at the end of that time and uh, were absolutely firm in their belief that they had done nothing wrong and that the trustees were firm in their belief that they had done nothing wrong. There lies the controversy. Yes. And the fact that this happened almost 200 years ago is kind of comforting when you think about it. <laughs> to know that everyone's egos are exactly the same. <laughs> so, Salvatore, St. Patrick's Cathedral is a New York landmark. It's a cultural institution, in addition to being a house of worship. So how did these various roles develop? I think that the second it opened 
it was all the, all of those things because... Open on Fifth Avenue. Yeah. At that time, that was the largest house of worship in America, which impressed people greatly. Uh, it's it's funny, to, it, we're used to skyscrapers as a, as a matter of course, but at that time, New York really had buildings that were, whew, 18, 1879. Church steeples were kind of it mm-hmm. for great structures. Mm-hmm. A building tended to be six stories. It wasn't until the 1880s when they began elevator architecture, as they called it, that we began to get skyscrapers. Because who wanted to walk up all those steps? (laughs) Exactly. So this was very impressive. And not only was it impressive, but they had opened it with a great ceremony. And this was so attractive to so many people. Now, William F. Pesher, who was the director of music at the time, had decided that he wanted a big choir with a big sound. He worked at that assiduously. And in a sense, he was offering what a lot of choir masters in New York were not offering. He was offering big music. Mm-hmm. And a lot, of, a lot of Sundays, regular Sundays, would be with an orchestra. Mm-hmm. This was an amazing thing to many people. So it became instantly popular. That was one of the reasons. Uh, the music helped. The structure helped. You had Archbishop McCloskey, who was, excuse me, Cardinal McCloskey. By that time, he was Cardinal, definitely. And he was a draw. So it was simply something that was, call it, preordained success. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it had really never changed after that point. St. Patrick's Cathedral has a special connection to Fordham University here in the Bronx. Can you share what that is with us? Well, I know you have the old altar, for one thing. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. And I've never seen it. And now that I'm up here, maybe I should take a look. Yeah, yes. why not walk all over there? Now, Salvatore, let's talk a little about you. Uh, you're not only an author, you are, as you stated earlier, part of St. Patrick's Choir. So how did this develop? This happened, well, uh, this happened in the wake of a tragedy, which was the death uh, Christmas morning, 1997, of John Michael Caprio, the music director. At that time, they had in the choir a bass soloist, John Calvin West, who was not only a singer, but a conductor. And he had been moved into the position of interim music director. They were planning a concert, and John realized as the as 1998 started that he was going to be busy waving a stick rather than being able to sing, and he needed a substitute quickly. And a friend of his recommended me. I went in to meet him. I had the shortest audition of my life, bless him, six bars of music, (laughs) at which he just said, oh, you'll be fine. Would you like to share what you sang? Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were going to say, absolutely. This is radio. That would have been awesome. (laughs) (laughs) It was part of the Mozart Requiem. I'll say say that much. Mm -hmm. But uh, we had enjoyed working together. He asked me to stay on for Holy Week. And then as the season was beginning, the new season, he asked me if I'd come aboard. And I was delighted. And I've been there ever since. So now, um, what does the role and responsibility of being this historian, this keeper of Catholic history, Catholic musical history, what does that mean to you? It's fascinating that the cathedral did have an archivist. And he did write a history of the cathedral. This was the cathedral itself. But... Not being a musician, 
there were things that he did not notice mm. that would be links. It is it works better for a musician to be that kind of historian, to mm. do that kind of looking than it does for a regular archivist who might not be musical and might not say, oh, him, I know what he did. Mm -hmm. So. And I would also think that there would be a fear, as you stated earlier, that um, musical copy you had was, was you know, breaking up and tearing, mm -hmm. that if that happened with a number of musical pieces or a number of newspaper articles about St. Patrick's Cathedral, that the history would be gone. This is something which I'm going to assume this is every historian, every archivist in any, in, in any field, any place. I remember being told there there was a period where the cathedral had had a number of choir directors in a row. And I remember hearing that at one point the choir loft was being cleared of cases of old music. Mm. And at the time... And by I cleared, you mean gotten rid of? Garbage. Oh, wow. At the time, it didn't register with me, but in the light of what I've done nowadays... That makes me sweat because mm -hmm. I think, what went? Yeah, what did I miss? Mm -hmm. Are you going to continue with adding on to the history of uh, of St. Patrick's? Well, as long as they'll let me into the you know into the back doors, yes. <laughs> <laughs> This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Now we hear from Casey Candela, who talks with Monsignor Donald Sicano about Archbishop John Hughes. The 19th century Catholic laid the cornerstone of St. Patrick's Cathedral, founded Fordham University, and they discuss how he got the name Dagger John. So let's talk about Archbishop John Hughes. Can you tell me um, a little bit about what kind of figure he was in New York? Well, he had a great reputation as a visionary. He was a person who could slice through a problem and, and solve it. He was a virulent advocate of the immigrant, of which now the city was receiving in vast numbers. He was, by the way, and I think it's important to mention these days, he, he was um, an ambassador for President Lincoln informally. Uh, to intercede in the Catholic nations in Europe to stay out of the Civil War on the side of the Confederacy. So there was a real interest in, in Europe at that time uh, to favor the Confederacy because of the economics of the cotton trade. And, uh, so actually John Hughes went over to Europe to, uh, to defend the Union on behalf of uh, Abraham Lincoln. So we're very proud of that aspect of, of, of him. He founded the first parochial school system. Wow, so let's talk a little bit more about um, the parochial schools. Why was there a need for private Catholic schools in New York during the well, mid-1800s? Well, he felt that the public school system was, uh, was governed with a, a Protestant viewpoint. Um, and indeed it was, and it wasn't the public school that we know today. It was run by a so private non-governmental agency and um, uh, he felt that the pros proselytizing the Catholic immigrant was not in his favor, uh, and so he established a way to socialize the immigrant into the church and into housing and into, into the economy. 
And so not only did he establish the uh, first parochial school right here at 32 Prince Street, but Fordham University. You know, so he had a vision to create a, a family of institutions you know, that would uh, uh, guide people, educate them, socialize them you know, into the American culture. And he was very successful at doing that and was recognized by that. So what made uh, Fordham at that time called St. John's College, what made it unique um, in its region, in its, um, in its sphere? I think what made it unique was that it was um, a, a liberal arts uh, institution uh, that gave uh, the student a, an understanding of the world and it, it, it was a, a place for inspiration as well as gaining skills that would be obviously helpful to them in their livelihood, but it also inspired them with values that were important to, for happiness. Right, I mean, one of, the, one of the mottos is care of the whole person or cure a personalis is something you constantly, constantly hear at Fordham. Right. Um, but and another part- that, that was Hughes' you know, philosophy. Uh, and he tinkered at all aspects of the human experience. You know, so some people are surprised that he was this ambassador for the Union, uh, that he established the public school system, and that his nickname was Dagger John. Actually, the, the, the nickname Dagger John came to him because bishops signed their name with a cross after their, their surname. So in his case, it would be John, little cross, Hughes. And the way the press picked that up uh, was, in the linotype days, was to use a little dagger when they, they printed out his name. So it was John Dagger Hughes. So he, he got the nickname Dagger, Dagger John. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. Happy Holidays.